Hi, everyone. Today, we're having a three-way between me, Hellevorn, and Tete, and we're going to be talking about how Tete has done her research for two of her works, 70 Fierce Years, which is Andre's story, and Union of Wave and Shore, which is Kai and Gerda's story in 19th century Norway. So to start this off, we'll start with 70 Fierce Years, because Tete has been researching about Andre and his story since she was a teenager. So it's been around 10 years since you started. And, you know, we want to learn more about where you got the first idea for 70 Fierce Years. It all started, it was sort of a convoluted process. Um, but the, the main concept was to me around the age of 15 or 16 in that time period, there came to me this person who was with these very set descriptions, um, a very fierce, hot-tempered man from the Don Cossack region who was a Don Cossack himself. Um, and I should say the Don region, not the Don Cossack region, I apologize. Um, he was dark hair, dark eyed, had a very fiery temper, and had um, gone through a lot of loss and tribulation, but you know, still had a good spirit about things. And his name was Andre. And that, that core concept had stuck with me for a while. And for the longest time, I thought his story was set in another time period and under different circumstances. But when I met you, I guess one could say the seance-like experience with him um, just heightened more, you know, exponentially. And then I realized, you know, he was from the 20th century and his losses and tribulations were a result as not only the after effects of World War I, um, but mainly um, the Russian uh, Civil War, which, you know, resulted into the, the formation of, you know, the Soviet Union and everything like that. And that's uh, the main crux and, and, um, obstacle of his story. So I began to research it very fervently around 2016, 2017. And my research shifted, it shifted from 19th century Russia, which was more vague about the Cossacks, because it, at that point, the Cossacks are forming their own, if you will, semi semi autonomous state within that region. So it's more vague, it's more just elongated throughout the century. But this, on the other hand, was more specific, especially since there was a division between the Don Cossacks themselves, or whether or not to aid in forming the Soviet Union or um, trying to oppose them. And while not being primarily czarist, although there were some czarist supporters, uh, mostly trying to form their own autonomous state separate uh, from the Soviet Union and, and probably separate from, I guess you could say, like the, the pan-Russian identity political block. block. Yes, exactly. And, you know, that and that itself is something I think a lot of people need to differentiate, that there was that kind of, if you will, a, like a try, a try a trio of political divisions. You have some that want to support the Soviet Union and, you know, they support, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, that's always a thing. And then you have some that 
maybe might be czars, but then you have that third one, which a lot of people forget, is that a lot in the Don Cossacks, they wanted their own autonomous state. They liked the semi-autonomy that they had under the previous empire, but they did not like the obligations they had to give to the empire, which they felt they were getting in diminishing returns and they wanted their own autonomous state. And this is where you get like the Don National Army, the, um, the Don State, if you will, and how they situated themselves like in the different cities like um, Novochakarsak, I probably, I probably butchered that. If there's any Russian speakers out there who can pronounce that, I would be very grateful. Um, and, you know, also different cities like, you know, um, Shotsky, Shotsky, if, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, so that's, that's something that a lot of people don't realize, especially for people who are U.S. centric, who only think that this conflict is only like czarist versus, you know, Bolshevik. It's not. It's more mm -hmm. complicated. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, speaking of the history of 70 fierce years, you know, let's talk about the history of how you did your research for it. You know, as Helleborn and Ren and me talked about in a previous episode, which we also talked about um, research methods, um, you know, back in 2009 and 2010, a lot of us were still very young and still reliant on Wikipedia and other sources that are less reputable, such as GSIDs, uh, random HTML sites, especially if you're looking up history stuff, because a lot of the time I notice, I mean, especially, you know, as you know, we always talk about the site that we found, like the Dobokors, the, 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 the Dokobors for the names Dekobor. in Russian, remember, and all the diminutives. And mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of these sites like that Dokobor site where these people, mostly in their 80s or 60s or 70s, are always talking about their grandparents from you know, a long time ago and saying, hey, these are my family pictures. And this is what grandpa told me about what the Cossacks or what the Dokopors or what the old believers were like, you know, back in, I don't know, 1901 or something. I mean, this is a very rich trove of information, but how accurate are these family tales, which may not be accurate, especially since these people are often, you know, third generation immigrants who were born in the US or Australia or UK or Canada, but their grandparents or great grandparents were the ones who were from Russia. Right, right. That, and like you said, it is a treasure trove to a degree because it's like you're getting it from the horse's mouth. But the problem when you are orally passing something down is the room for mistranslation, misinterpretation, misunderstanding something. And then memories might be inaccurate. Like grandma might say this happened in this city, but then you do research from the actual place and then you find out it took place in another city or there was something else. And also too, they may have not directly experienced it. They might've heard it from other people. Um, I was, um, I was sort of blessed. So I guess to start off with the history of how I began research, I began very old school with the books, um, getting them from different libraries. I'd go to my own library, interlibrary loan it from like a random university in Pennsylvania, like somewhere in Scranton, which would probably have more because Scranton is kind of um, a hub of a lot of uh, different Slavic ethnicities in Pennsylvania, as much as like Pittsburgh or Philly, um, because mm -hmm. you, you know, Pennsylvania does have a bit of a, you know, Slavic 
undertone of ethnic groups, um, mostly because of coal mines and steel mills and stuff. Right. Um, you mentioned Polish people and Hungarians who are not Slavic, but they also immigrated alongside the Polish laborers, right? Exactly. And, and, and also too, like in Pittsburgh, there's a lot of Ukrainians and um, people who claim to be of Cossack ancestry. Although <laughs> it's kind of, you know, you have to wonder, is it, sometimes it is, sometimes it's legit. Um, the only problem is, is that a lot of people who are Ukrainian like to call themselves Cossacks. I don't know if it's because they want to look cool or if maybe they wanted to be so independent. It's like, okay, we'll call ourselves Cossacks and do stuff. <laughs> you know? Right. Because you also got to know someone also who is an Orthodox priest and he claims to be a Cossack and he's also from Pennsylvania. Yes, he is wow. from Scranton. Um, his name is uh, Sasha. I won't give the rest of his name for privacy reasons, but... Um, he was an acquaintance of a family member. And um, yes, he claims to be a Kuban Cossack. So Kuban Cossacks are from the Kuban host that are from the Kuban River. So they're different from the Don. They're more Caucasus influenced, which is where usually when we think of the stereotype of a Cossack, we think of the Caucasian clothes because they're so exotic and you know, all that. But yes, he is uh, very gung-ho about it. And he likes the costumes and trappings. He had a lot of valuable research. Um, I, his family, I guess, was on the side of uh, the czarist side, I guess. So I guess he was one of the few fringes that were still czarist. And ironically, he himself is kind of interested about revi reviving uh, bizarre rule in Alaska I don't know why he's he's thinking about Alaska should be under a czar or something <laughs> <laughs> if exactly. I may say you know so many fascinating people this is actually amazing that you got to talk to to these people that uh you know inspired you to learn more about about these this region it it did it did I mean even if it wasn't gone it was it was related and yeah. um I enjoyed the conversations and learning about the Cossack approach to orthodoxy, like interesting facts, like many Cossacks don't want to see a picture of Jesus riding on a donkey. They think it's offensive. So the, in their icons, you'll see Jesus riding a, a horse, you know? Wow. You know? Right. Do you know why? Yeah. Uh, they think that a, a donkey is less than respectful like they think it's kind of beneath oh that's beneath jesus to show him on a on a donkey mm. even though it's biblically accurate they're like uh we'll put jesus on a horse because you know only you know christ deserves the best let's give him a horse that's yeah, true i i guess that that was the whole point to, to show his modesty but the <laughs> cultural well, differences you know <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to say it as a broad generalization, but Cossacks yeah, kind of value pride and like, you know, oh, this is beneath me. I'm not doing this, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. They're very yeah. demonstrative people, as we see in the role plays with Andre. You know, he is someone who loves <laughs> life. He's someone who has a lot of goals and he won't settle for less. He wants to have everything. He won't. Um, it's like that song, uh, you know, can't get enough. And uh, <laughs> that's what Andre is. He's very demonstrative. He's very um, temperamental. And he does not, uh, he does not take anything from anybody, you know, no nothing. He won't put up with anything from anybody. And, um, but yeah, it was interesting. Uh, uh, 
having known Sasha for two years, of course, unfortunately, when I left Facebook, he kind of disappeared as well. But um, it was interesting to see all the different information and viewpoints. And you know what, there, there, I think there were a lot of inaccuracies and misconceptions and things, you know, I, I think especially being, you know, third or fourth generation. But it was really nice to see all the different family photographs and communities, because that also put me in touch with other people who were part of like these Cossack revivalist things. And even though I have to worry about nationalistic concerns about it and how that could alter history and everything, um, it, it gave me some information and cultural tidbits. Like if you can ignore the political stuff, you can look at the cultural tidbits and details that you can get uh, from such sources and straight from the horse's mouth. And um, so from Kuban, I was able to find a lot of Don Cossack stuff and that helped a lot too. And it, it's a bit different though, because out of all the Cossack hosts, Don is probably the most, um, probably the most largest unified and sort of considered westernized, quote unquote, out of all the hosts. And this is also too, because Don's kind of prided themselves not only on being very different than say the quote, um, Russian counterpart, you know, they were kind of more, they felt more affinity to Ukrainian, but also they were more prone to Western influences. While you hear a lot of Don Cossack officers who could speak French, they were very fluent in French, like a lot of affluent, um, social people in Russia at the time, but they also embraced Western fashion a lot more. So you could probably tell the difference between say, you know, a Kazachka, a Cossack woman, a Don Cossack woman, than say average Russian country woman, you know, the, the style and approach would be very different. And, um, but yes, you know, getting back to about why, how research is done and everything, you know, geosities, all these HTMLs, they're very valuable. They have their inaccuracies, but you can glean tidbits and then you can compare it when you find other sources. And then you get other good sources like books that are being coming out more recently from people who have done more research, more online articles from different um, websites that are more up to date. You can look at their sources because they're properly cited and you can research that and look into it. So the history of the research that has been done for 70 fierce years has definitely expanded um, into better improved research. I wouldn't say it's complete. You know, there are still some gaps that I have not been able to fill and I may not, you know, Andre is sometimes reticent about talking about certain things and I'm okay with that. I respect his reticent, you know, reticent nature on that. But um, I think for the most part, I think I have, you know, accurately research the quintessential. And I'm hoping that when people read it, I hope there are people who can correct me and may have a better knowledge of it, a more intimate, thorough academic knowledge of, of this period and people and everything. And um, maybe I'll come out with a revised second edition or something someday in the long mm -hmm. near future. That makes sense. Because sometimes if you don't have all the facts and you uh, find out more it's good to go back and add some stuff definitely definitely it um and, and it's rewarding you know it's, it's rewarding because so many people kind of have a broad understanding of it and and there's so many misconceptions it's nice to debunk misconceptions and find out details of like 
what's really happening or what really happened. Mm-hmm. Right. So in terms of primary versus secondary sources, which do you think were more helpful for you? I'm going to have to say probably secondary because not only did it confirm what primary had, but it added more and gave more clarification because at first what I thought, like the main conflict, like I thought like a lot of uh, Western centric or in my case, US centric people, I just thought the conflict was primarily czarist versus Bolshevik. But then I realized, you know, when you're thinking of white versus red, that's actually kind of divided. It not it wasn't exclusively czarist. And then you have the branch off of, you know, dawn nationalism. That in itself is, while it's associated with white, it's it doesn't really have the political and social economic leanings as the other non-Czarist white side would have. You know, that's why, you know, I have Andre questioning a lot of what higher ups are lining up with the whites that it's not really matching up with what, you know, the Dawn, the Dawn national idea wants to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I guess for um, your secondary sources, like, do you think your work is, can be situated like, you know, like, we talked about in Ren and Halvorn's podcast, situated in an existing uh, literary canon or body of research? For example, do you think you're presenting a view of Cossacks that is different from a lot of presentations that you usually see in the existing literature? I would have to say yes. I think it does differentiate. I think, for example, one thing that was kind of big in my research actually pretty major was uh, Sholokov's um, And Quiet Flows the Dawn. Um, And that being said, you know, I found a lot of wonderful details. And when I did research, I found out a lot of them were, you know, pretty accurate. And, you know, I tend to incorporate that a bit to have a better cultural understanding of Andre and his background and his people and his heritage. But at the same time, there's something about the characterization of it thereof that that feels very extreme very political and someone like Trolokov is is painting a lot of characters in an overly negative light and of course it's pretty much political posturing and he's trying to show oh this is what everything was before such and such and this is why we needed such and such and you know while that can be to a degree there's a lot of accuracy and I always applaud when people are not afraid to delve into the dark, nasty stuff of society and people. The fact that he shows no other kind of characters really makes me realize he's doing this for political. And of course, I don't blame him when you're under a certain uh, regime, your regime and system under a certain person. I won't name names because I think everybody has an idea who I'm talking about. you have to write things that um, make the man happy. So just say, oh, this all sucked. Uh, this is great. Now we have this. So that's what I get from Quiet Flows the Dawn. So I think my presentation is, I'm not trying to whitewash or make anyone look innocent or saintly. I am showing flawed people, but at the same time, I wanna show people who had ideals, who had loves, who had losses, who, you know, had, you know, they were, they were good people because they're among your 
everyone is good and bad and in between. And I wanted to show that with Andre, you know, Andre, he has a lot of flaws for sure. He does, but you know, he's nowhere as near as, you know, a selfish, a selfish, selfish son of a gun, like Gregor or, mm-hmm. or as terrible as Stepan or mm-hmm. as arrogant as Lisinski or, um, or any of the other characters. I mean, the only characters that I truly liked were probably um, were Anna and Buchakov because, but bon, Bonchakov, I'm sorry, um, because, but that, but then again, they were political. You know, they were on the other political side. So of course they're going to be painted in this wonderful light. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah. you are going to be more objective, right? And uh, make the characters more than one. So this is one one thing that, uh, you know, in older fiction, that wasn't uh, always the case. Right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, being able to be more objective, um, show more nuance, more variety. You know, I think that's something too that we, sometimes we don't see in older fiction because of bias or people just wanting to avoid censorship and things. So um, definitely a lot more nuanced. You know, I'm showing that both sides both have bad and good. One side isn't bad entirely. One side isn't good entirely. And there's people who don't even believe in the side they're on. They just don't know where to be. And then you got people who don't know where to be and they don't even know what they are, if they're bad or good, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a reflection on how society really is rather than trying to make a, a political statement or trying to appease something or someone. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Right. So moving on to the union of wave and shore, um, you know, this is the 19th century version of your characters, Gerda and Kai, who we previously saw on DeviantArt as, you know, fantasy characters as, you know, Gerda and the Frost Lord, respectively. So now that you have chosen to place them in, um, you know, a more modern and less fantastical setting, you have had to do a lot more research for them. Because before you did do some historical research about paganism and, you know, some of the historical influences like Sami influence in Gerda's clothing and part of her magic. But now you have to do more stuff such as, you know, law, inheritance laws, um, you know, life milestone traditions of uh, 19th century rural Norwegian society. And how has research been for Union of Wave and Shore so far? What do you find the easiest and what do you find the most difficult? So I think for Union and Shore, it's a challenge, um, mainly because whenever we're presented with the 19th century, like I said in the preview, we're always given this Anglo-Gallic centric viewpoint and, and thus everybody goes with a template like that. And this is why a lot of things would feel inaccurate if such an approach was applied. So I guess the, the main difference with the research is that it's had to be more modern and historical, if you will, the 19th century, as opposed to like doing like medieval stuff or dark age stuff or you know, it just actually with Gerda and Kai as the fantasy counterparts, it was more like lore research, trying to figure out lore of different things and root paganism concepts that were being interpreted 
in a fantasy vein because I just didn't want you know your D&D wizard and stuff and all that I mean I didn't want that because I just feel so generic it's it's so I wanted something that was more organic more pagan more it felt more realistic it was like informed by history and lore and, and the concepts thereof and um so the research was different in that. And it was a little bit more easier because you could be more fast and loose with the facts. And then I didn't have to make it so accurate. I could take a fact like, oh, this is such and such like concept of motherhood. I could run with that, you know, and things like that. Or, you know, um, the norms of fate, you know, I could play fast and loose with that, so to speak, not really play, but interpret it loosely, artistic license. And, um, but with, Gerda and Kai in Union of Wave and Shore, everything was altered, as particularly Kai's character. He was pretty much a, a whole other person um, than what he is. I mean, I don't even consider the Frost Lord and Kai Halderson to be the same person anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but the research is more difficult, I think, because there's not that much on 19th century Norway, except maybe for the latter, like emerging out of the agrarian society into more modern society. I, well, not more modern, but urban industrial society. Um, and it's very different too, as, as, Hello, um, as Hello Vorn was pointing out, it's very different from the rest of the world. And you can't just lump also to like Scandinavia together because what's happening in Denmark is obviously going to be different. What's happening in Sweden is very different. Um, what's happening in Finland is very different. Um, and, and of course, Finland is, is Nordic, not, not Scandinavian per se, um, just to clarify that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want people to think I was lumping it all together. But um, so it's, it's very different. And, and, and sometimes I feel like it's kind of ignored and it's hard to find the resources, especially if you're not a native Norsk speaker. And that in itself can be rather hard because that seems so niche. Like who wants to read 19th century Norway inheritance laws, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think something like Ibsen, which Hellevorn was talking about reviewing on the channel, maybe later in the future, like authors like Ibsen, do you think they provide insight into, you know, a similar society? Because it also takes place in a similar time frame in the same country. True, true. And I was thinking like that because... I did that with with uh, Andre with you know Sholokov's works, which not only Quiet Flows of the Dawn, but all of the Dawn cycle, if you will. Like, there's at least several books, and also anything Sholokov writes about Cossacks, they tend to view as holy word. Although I'll challenge it a lot. Um, I need to find more Norwegian writers of the 19th century. Um, Ibsen is one I should probably start off with. I only know A Doll's House. My only problem is. It's, I think it's more urban. Therefore, you know, is it going to relate to like farming folk, like, you know, Gerda and Kai um, and more rural stuff? Because um, I think it takes place in a city, doesn't it? I think. Yeah, I it does. It, um, most of Ibsen's character, uh, sorry, plays do take place in a city, but then cities uh, in 19th century Norway were quite primitive. So unless we're talking about Christiania, which, which was the, the name of Oslo at the time, I guess, a lot of them were not as 
city-like as we uh, imagine. So uh, there is actually in uh, in Ibsen's uh, plays this theme of of nature, which is not really in the romantic sense, but rather in the um, you know the the cleavage between the city and the countryside and. Um, um, I, I think that the, there is a, a lot about, uh, I mean, nature is, is a symbol in itself. So yeah, I think Ibsen is a wonderful place to start. He is an absolutely brilliant writer whom I love and, and I have not yet found a play of his which has not been, uh, you know, really eye-opening in terms of uh, how he presents society and uh, uh, human nature, but um, the the great four of the 19th century Norwegian literature, uh, which are Ibsen, Björnstadne, Björnsson, Alexander Hjeland, and Jonas Lee, you can, you know, reading what they wrote um, at the beginnings of uh, uh, realist writing, uh, that will definitely help in, in showing a, a more uh, accurate uh, portrayal of society because uh like you said before it's in a way it's easier and in a way it is much more difficult uh the more you had uh closer to the present because uh compared to the middle ages for example because uh in in my setting in medieval norway we don't actually have um contemporary sources and so nobody in 10th century norway was writing about 10th century society mm -hmm. but 19th century norway is really heavily uh described especially in the the fiction of the time so i guess you have a lot of sources but that also complicates things a lot doesn't it mm -hmm. i would i th i would have to say it 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 does but at the same time the benefits that you you know listed sound really they sound exactly what i'm looking for because i i do want to present an accurate depiction of this of this time and this society and everything and um i want to understand the nuances and the you know what makes it different than you know the usual template we're presented with when we think of 19th century and um you know also to you know, because some of the some of the work is like not mid or early 19th century, it's like later 19th century. I am kind of worried, is there a difference or a cultural shift or change? Because like with Gerda and Kai, it takes place kind of in the, well, pretty much the 1820s. It's like after Napoleonic Wars, people are, have calmed down and, you know, you're sort of leaving the decadence of the Regency and entering the more subdued era that was well, what I know it as, and I guess some other people know it as like the the, the Biedermeier era, so to speak. Mm, I see. Yeah, I think that was um, a, a period of important changes in Norway because, you know, the, the, the Danish rule ended in 1814, but then Danish influences were still huge uh, upon Norway. And, uh, you know, Swedish influences as well. So I guess Norway was not very independent in, in the 1820s as it would be later on because they started uh, developing on their own, uh, especially culturally 
after the 1850s, I think. So, of course, Ibsen will only help you uh, or will mostly help you if if the story is set, you know, in the half, in the second half of the 19th century. True. I mean, I, I would think you would have more sources on that. Yeah, yeah, probably more sources and learning. Uh, maybe I'll have to add that on Duolingo learn Norsk so I can find more sources. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I guess. We have uh, two more minutes. Well, I guess that you have a lot of sources in English as well. So um, I, I guess you can, uh, you can, you can do your reading on that. And then maybe knowing Norwegian is not as important. Mm -hmm. True, true, probably. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, this definitely gives me a lot of encouragement and a very good place to start. So I am going to um, look up the works of the authors, study their works like I did with Sholokov for the Don Cossacks and glean what I can and look up different resources on different, you know, academic sources and everything. I will Absolutely. be really happy to discuss Simpson with you because I, I'm I'm very excited about him and excited to to talk to people about this. Yay, read Simpson, and I'm so I, I'll be really happy to talk about this. <laughs> Me too. I I can't wait. It's so nice to find somebody who who also is in the same geographical area. Well, you know, like wanting to do that research there. Um, there's not a lot of people. Not a lot of people talk about it, and a lot of people think about it like, oh, Norway, isn't that where they have fjords or something? <laughs> <laughs> Very true, yes. Right. So we have one minute left. And you know what? I think we managed to cover all our points, which was really great because, you know, from our Instagram preview, it seemed like, you know, this was going to take two hours. <laughs> Yeah, we really did superbly, and Tete was so uh, thorough and, and, and concise, and, and she gave us so much information in this relatively short time. So this is really impressive. I want to say that all, all the, all the uh, research that you've done. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you guys so much for your contribution and help with all the research. Um, thank you for organizing this Fortunus Games. And thank you, Helen Warren, for, you know, your wonderful, wonderful research and for helping me with before with getting the different sources mm -hmm. for the inheritance laws and everything. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Goodbye.